Last week we looked at scripture that talks about what the kingdom of God is like. And we looked at the importance of perspective and the need to keep God's, keep in mind God's immutable character, right? Immutable, not changing. To keep that in mind as we read his word. I talked about how our cultures have blurred the church's vision of heaven. And we spent time looking at what Jesus had to say about the very real kingdom of heaven. Today, I want to begin with a simple question. Why have we been saved? Let's make that more personal. Why do you think that you have been saved. To try to answer that with God's motives in mind is, it's pretty difficult. Why me and not others? I'm not really worthy. You agree with me? I am not really worthy. And none of us are. I don't bring anything impressive at all to the table. Why save me at all? Why not just end of life lights out? Like so many people now believe. We could just say that God saved me because he wanted me. And that would be enough. Try saying that. God saved me because he wanted me. Go ahead, I'll wait. Yeah, that individual, he wanted me, is sometimes really hard to fathom. Maybe the simplicity of that answer is why the Apostle Paul used the potter and the clay illustration. Everyone who loves God and is called according to his purpose is a pot that was saved, kept for the potter's future use, that purpose for which the pot was made. There's that word again, purpose. Do we have a purpose beyond being the objects of God's undeserved love, created to dwell with him forever? Do we have a purpose that goes beyond that? We do. We most definitely do. Does that purpose have anything to do with, you know, angel wings and fluffy clouds and harps and cute little cherubs? Okay. Actually, there will be harps in heaven, I think. There will be cherubs, but not the way we picture them. We talked about thoughts like that last week, and we're reminded of how a pathetic view of our eternal purpose is so counterproductive to walking out our faith through our years here on earth. It's counterproductive. Certainly, we don't want the permanent sufferings of hell But heaven just seems like, let's admit it, it seems like eventual boredom. I'll be happy to sing glory and honor and praise and my thanks to the Lord for a million years. 
straight. But then what? More singing? How long will we, con- will we be content to tell stories to each other, reminiscing about the old times of our lives on earth? Which, by the way, will not seem like the good old days. So, tell me again, how did you meet Jesus? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Isn't it amazing that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords calls us brother and sister? Yeah, we'll say, it's just awesome. So, what are you going to do today? Um, Sing some more, I guess. Is that the kind of chats we'll have with each other in heaven? These kinds of things, they'll be great and wonderful, but won't we be, oops, there's a problem with using the computer. If you go one line too far, it jumps up. These kind of things will all be great and wonderful, but won't we be wondering what our rewards for being faithful with a little were for? Having crowns, sometimes on our heads and sometimes thrown at Jesus' feet in gratitude and submission, may not seem so important after, let's say, the first billion years. Still wearing them. Maybe there's more to the kingdom of heaven than we have recognized so far. I'm even suggesting that many of us have not well understood the significance of the kingdom and the power and the glory. I dare say none of us have fully understood it. But let's at least try to make some things a little clearer here today. I mean, last week we looked at some of Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of heaven. He kept using that same phrase. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's almost as if he wanted his disciples to know what the kingdom of heaven was like. Remember the scriptures telling us that our lives are like a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. I made an illustration for you. Hopefully it will make some sense to you. Like an exhaled breath on a cold morning, lasting only a moment and then gone. That's our lives, according to Scripture. Compared to the eternity in which our God inhabits. Today we'll look deeper at what Jesus said about the kingdom of heaven, what it's like. We'll see that the kingdom of God interacts with our earthly lives and will one day supersede this reality, encompassing it and replacing it permanently. You're going to have to focus this morning. You may literally need to take some notes so that you can explain these things to your kids this afternoon. Some of this is kid-friendly young person friendly, some of it is really deep. Kids, teenagers, young adults, if you get the point of this teaching 
And never let this truth fade away from your hearts. I spotted some right over here. It'll change your life permanently and forever, including how you spend your days on this earth. You're going to have to focus this morning. We need to let go of some misconceptions and connect some seemingly disconnected dots. This will help us clarify our understanding of heaven. It should also help at least some of us reprioritize the activities of our remaining days. Whether we're young or old. Misperception number one. Our crowns of gold rewards. If when we get to heaven we receive a crown of gold, why would it be valuable to us? We're told that the streets are made of gold. Our streets are made of asphalt. Would we be impressed with a crown made of asphalt? Here's your reward. Streets in heaven are made of gold. There must be another meaning. A crown in the kingdom will not be valuable based on the market price of gold. Nor will its value be as a fashion accessory to impress others. Neither will it be a prideful representation of our accomplishments. We already know pridefulness is the oldest sin in the book. By that I mean it was the root cause of Lucifer's rebellion. No wonder God hates pridefulness in his people. I suspect that the true value of a crown was understood better by people of the first century. A first century Middle Eastern villager would have had a far different reaction than we do today to seeing someone with a crown on their head. Back then, you would immediately recognize that this person has some kind of authority. This person is in some way powerful because he or she is wearing a crown. You might have thought it a blessing to see, to even see such a person. Or you might have thought, "Uh uh-oh, this can't be good. I suppose that would all depend on your previous experiences with authority. Whatever the case, you wouldn't saunter up to the crowned person and say, hey, nice crown. Can I try that on? Where can I get one of these? No, the villager's likely response would be a respectful bowing of the head and the knee. They might even throw themselves on the ground in fear and respect. A crown represents authority of the person wearing it. In scripture, we see many instances of people with crowns, all of them having authority, but none more spectacular than the rider on the white horse. You can find his description in Revelation. 19, 11, and 12. The rider on the white horse with many crowns on his head. 
I don't know how many times I read that and it just went. And on his head were many diadems. Another word for crowns. So are we to understand that the writer proceeds with a bunch of crowns stacked on his head like some circus performer? It's a stupid thought. And yet we read right over it. And on his head were many crowns. Huh. There's some other meaning there. It doesn't make sense unless the crowns represent multiple authorities that the writer possesses. Then that makes perfect sense. Who's the writer? Jesus. Jesus, who was given all authority in heaven and on earth when he resurrected, defeating sin and bringing all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, under his authority now. Jesus, wearer of many crowns, even all crowns. The crowns of the kingdom of heaven are real and they represent authority, authority that is purposeful. Not just ceremonial. It will not be like some local hero who's given a plastic crown and a styrofoam key to the city. That's not what we're receiving. So here are two more dots to connect. In scripture, crowns given as rewards are symbols of authority. Authority in heaven is like authority on earth in this sense. It's given for a purpose. If I give you authority over some sci-fi movie planet, it would be meaningless, really, right? It's not really a thing at all. But if at the Bema Seat of Christ, and that's an unusual phrase we don't hear often, and that is a, a message all to itself, but it's the place where Jesus calls us to account as his servants. Jesus, if Jesus gives you a crown representing authority in the kingdom of heaven, then that's a different thing altogether because the kingdom of heaven is a real place and so there must be a purpose for our newly delegated authority. There must be something or someone or some place that you are going to have authority over as the servant of the Lord, your king. Let's look closer at what scripture reveals about authority. There's a very clear depiction about delegated authority displayed for us in the description of Jesus' interactions with Pontius Pilate. Remember? He was in charge over the Jews. He was a Roman government employee. John 19, verse 1. I'm going to try to read through this quickly. When Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Of course, mocking him. And they struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again to the crowd and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. 
Yeah, I beat him and scourged him, but he's not really guilty of anything. What was he thinking? So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. But I did have him beaten. The Jews answered, We have a law that according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Sometimes you'll hear people in our culture, in our society, who will tell you, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? The religious leaders of his time knew exactly what he was claiming and that he claimed he was God. And they wanted him crucified for it. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority of, to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. God will delegate authority to whomever he pleases, even an unbeliever, to have his will done in the things that get played out on this earth. Here we can see that authority can be delegated and that it can be for a specific purpose or limited in scope or limited to a time or it can be permanent. Now if you will please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 25 verses verse 14. And sorry, but I am going to read again. Have you found it? Matthew 25, verse 14. <clears throat> Speaking of the kingdom of heaven. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two to another one. And kids' talents here is a measurement of weight of something, something of value. And it's, it's not like, hey, you're really talented with that soccer ball. Okay, different talent. To the other two, to another one, to each according to his ability. There's a little hint that God will not give you more than you can handle. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But the one who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants 
came and settled accounts with them. We have a master who's coming back. According to scripture, we will be called up to heaven to be with him, and there will be an accounting. Remember, he's saying this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Verse 20, And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What's the reward for faithful servants? More responsibility. Exponentially more. And he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Again, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Responsibility and the master's joy. Your master is going to be happy with you. That's really good. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers at a minimum. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the upper dark, outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. From that parable, we get a clearer picture of some important dynamics of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom of God is like not might be like, not could be like, is like. The master and the servant relationship. We won't arrive in heaven on some equal basis with Jesus. If you've only heard the part of scripture where he's described as our brother, then you need to read more. He's a glorified king. There is an established hierarchy of persons. That may be a new thought, but there it is in his description. One was given more, and they, were, they produced more, and he was given a large new job. 
You can see that in the, in the Luke account where, he says, where it says, go take charge of ten cities. That limited authority is given to the servants. It's proportional to their ability or what was their ability here on earth. Authority is interwoven with responsibility. The servant is tested over time. That's what the kingdom of God is like. When the master went away, what were his servants supposed to be doing? Doing the work they'd been left with, right? The master said he was going away without explaining why, but that he would return. And the servants do not know the fullness of the master's plan. That's another lesson from what the kingdom of God is like. We know some things. God has revealed some things to us, but we don't know the whole story. We're we're supposed to be faithful with what we're given to do. The master returned and required an accounting of the servants' activities. What had they done with what they had been given to work with? The master gave both rewards for good and faithful service and consequences for not doing the job, being fearful and lazy. One of the rewards for faithfulness was the master's happiness and approval. The reward for succeeding in the job was a new and much bigger job, a promotion, so to speak. The reward for faithfulness was disproportionate to the servant's task. You've been faithful with a little, and the reward is something great. Responsibility for a little became greater responsibility, ruler over many things. Faithful service results in greater service and responsibility. What you have learned tending to my investment with the skills I gave you, Jesus may say, qualifies you for an exponentially larger new job. Failure is not acceptable for a servant. Excuses are not accepted. Yeah, but but nothing. Excuses will not be accepted. The master accepts responsibility for the terms of his bargain, and he makes no apologies for judging harshly. This parable is told again, Luke 19, I mentioned. Minas instead of talents... Ten servants instead of three, but all the principles are the same. If this is what the kingdom of God is like, and I'm part of that kingdom because Jesus saved me, then I'm a servant there just as I'm a servant here. Only better because there we'll receive new delegated authority to accomplish each of our eternal purposes. I suspect that through the ages, many of God's children have been missing a part of the master's training program for authority in the kingdom. Jesus wants us to follow him. Okay, yeah, we we get that. We like that. Jesus wants us to be like him. We understand that too, and, and we're trying. 
But what he did in advancing the kingdom? Mm. That's a hard pill to swallow because he may ask me to do something I don't want to do. You see, we're in this life learning the ropes that make the kingdom of God work. (laughs) We're like rookie sailors. There's probably a name for that person. Not sure what it is. We're like rookie sailors who have to get on the boat and learn how to sail it while out to sea. You can learn about sailing in the classroom. But you have to get in the boat and go out on the water and feel the wind and the movement of the water to really learn how to sail. Same thing with the kingdom of God. We have to be engaged as his servants, not just students in a class, not just fans who are watching and cheering for others who are on the field. There's a truth to take to heart. Servants are meant to serve. It's not really so complicated. Self-serving servants aren't really servants at all. And the consequences are bad. We have rightly been told that as human beings, life is about who we are in Christ and to stop being so busy doing things. It's been popular to say that we need to concentrate on being a human being, just being. Now, there's Matthew's Gospel, and in it we're told that being a human doing is just as important. Doing what? There's the problem. Doing the work of the kingdom. Not doing whatever you please, just staying busy, trying to run the clock out till you can go home. Doing the work of the kingdom. That's using your time and your energy and your resources to advance the kingdom by being his witnesses and meeting the needs of others, especially to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. How well are we doing that? The critical element is that your doing flows from the spirit of Christ's leading. Doing things in our own strength and out of our own wisdom is not the way to produce fruit. Our doing must flow out of our relationship with Jesus. Doing the right things at the right time requires the leading of the Holy Spirit. How good are you How good are you at hearing his voice? You know, that can be a practiced skill. We can practice learning how to hear God's voice better. John 16, 13 and 14. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, That shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, Jesus is speaking, he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. There's his job description. 
responding to the Holy Spirit who leads us according to Jesus' word in parallel, in concert, never violating the word. That's how we do the things that produce fruit. It's also how we avoid burnout from thinking that we're responsible to do every good thing that comes to our mind. No, we're doing the work of the kingdom in concert with our brothers and sisters who hopefully are playing the right instrument and the right music and the right part. Please don't mess things up by not playing your part. When the whole orchestra decides that everyone can play whatever they want, all you get is noise. <laughs> you ever heard an orchestra warming up before the concert? <laughs> it's just a mess. But when we play our part, oh my, it is beautiful. Last week I mentioned that Eden is connected with the New Jerusalem. I'm grieved. No kidding, I feel it in my spirit. I'm grieved whenever I hear a preacher say or even imply that when Adam and Eve failed God, God had to find a way to restore man's relationship with him. Again, really? God got snookered by Satan? Are we to believe that God didn't know that the eating of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was actually going to happen? Let me ask you this. After some of the angels rebelled, who threw Lucifer and a third of the angels out of heaven? God did. That's power over Satan. Am I supposed to believe that God just wasn't thinking clearly on the sixth day of creation and whoops, he put Adam and Eve in harm's way? In a place where Satan could mess with them. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to let Satan have access to them. Why did he let that happen? Maybe he just forgot to tell them that there was a devious enemy living in the neighborhood. I would have put them somewhere else, out of the reach of Satan, and yet there they were, being tempted by Satan. To believe God messed up and had to figure out a way to straighten it all out is a kind of blasphemy to me. God didn't slip up for a moment, for just a moment when he wasn't omniscient. Yeah, he's old, but he's not our kind of old. He has always had all knowledge and all awareness, and he always will. He's always known the end from the beginning. What happened in the garden was a terrible mistake on the parts of Adam and Eve. A true disaster for them and all of us, their descendants. But it was no mistake for God. No mistake that he had to find a fix for or to go to plan B. The kingdom of God is no glitchy app that needs a patch. He knew that Adam and Eve would do 
what they would do, and he's always been working his plan to bring some of the sons of Adam back into the kingdom. That happens whenever we who are redeemed by God, by his only begotten son, are welcomed into heaven. We call it death, but for the redeemed, it's stepping into a new and eternal life that eventually leads to heaven. The new earth, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. What does God get out of his plan? As I see it, he gets sons and daughters who will never rebel against him because they were born first in the flesh, separated from him, children of darkness. Then by God's grace, they were born again spiritually and brought into the light. When we see him face to face, we will have eternal life, never to struggle with the flesh again. Praise God. We will love him and trust him and obey him and never, never rebel against him. Because unlike the angels, we will always remember from whence we came. From darkness and death into light and everlasting life. What a brilliant plan. So there's a prayer, a pair of points connected God's plan in Eden that looked like a disaster, working out his desire for faithful servants all the way through to the new Jerusalem and beyond. So what do I mean by beyond? We're getting there. I'm running out of time, but I'm going to keep going. God already has servants, and we call them angels. The apostle John, when he was in the spirit, he brought, when the, he was brought to heaven to see the things we now call the book of Revelation. He made a big mistake. After seeing everything, and he was being escorted by an angel who said, look at this, know this. After seeing everything, he fell down at the angel's feet and started to worship him. The angel quickly corrected him saying, you must not do this. For I am a servant of God just like you. He said, I'm a servant of God like you are a servant. He didn't say, I am just like you. That's partly because we're made differently than were the angels. We were made in the image of God who personally blew the breath of life into Adam and Eve. Unlike the angels, we became God's servants voluntarily. Each of you volunteered. Maybe you thought you were just volunteering to have eternal life. You were volunteering to be his servant too. The angels were servants from the beginning. Scripture says, even says in 1 Corinthians 6.3 that we will judge both the world and the angels. We're different from the angels. There's another glimpse of us being given authority in heaven. Need more convincing? Look at Jesus speaking to the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2, 25 and 28. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. 
the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. Do you not like the idea of having authority to rule over the nations? I've talked with a lot of people about this topic over the years, and it's kind of amazing how many people, when we get to this part, say, you know, I'm just not good with people. Uh, That just doesn't seem like something I want to do. It does sound a bit scary. You could just put your talent in the ground and do nothing, but we've already seen that that doesn't turn out well. We should instead believe God and rest in the fact that we were not taking, we will not be taking this flesh to heaven with us. Our weakness will be left behind. Hallelujah. We'll be empowered by God himself to always do the right thing and do it well. At that point, having authority in heaven Our success is assured. Emphasizing the point, look at what Jesus said to the believers in Philadelphia. That's the other Philadelphia in Turkey. Revelation 3, 11 and 21. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him see, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that includes the church in Battle Creek, Michigan. This promise of authority in heaven is really more important because As the 21st and 22nd chapters of Revelation teach us, God is not finished being creative. Remember? He hasn't changed. At this point, excuse me, at this point in the playing out of Revelation's prophecies, we will have already witnessed the rapture of the church, the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, the millennial reign of Christ, the final end of Satan, the great white throne judgment, and the second death for all the enemies of God who will be taken and thrown in the lake of fire with the deceiver. At this point, all of that stuff has happened. So no matter where your eschatology falls on the charts, we can be sure that we'll be there for the rollout of the new Jerusalem. And we'll be welcomed into it not as our retirement home. We are not going to a retirement party. We're going to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the beginning of something, not the end. The New Jerusalem, not a retirement home. It's more of a new, more of a new base of operations, a kind of HQ, if you will. 
will be faithful servants of God for whatever he has planned next. Let's read about it before we close the message. Hang in there with me. Relax, I'm not going to read all of Revelation 21 and 22. So, in chapter 21, verse 9, he's describing what this new Jerusalem looks like. It's actual components. And it's astounding. Read it again. Beginning at verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the land. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, and they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Hey, wait a minute. I remember when the day, the day when I read that and it was like I slammed on the brakes. This is something I don't understand. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those whose, are written, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Hmm. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Everything's already done. That list of the high points of eschatology, it's all finished. The great white throne judgment. Everybody who was an enemy of God was thrown into the lake of fire. And everybody who's had his name put on us, we're in the new Jerusalem. Who are these kings of the earth? Who are, it says, will, future. The nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Huh? Who is that? Remember, I forget the verse, where God says, basically, you haven't even comprehended what I've got stored up for you. You don't know. There's stuff we don't know. God didn't tell us everything. Some things he's kept to himself. Like the day when he's sending Jesus back for the church. Only the Father knows. Oh my. What a blessed hope we have. 
all of this discussion about parables and crowns and authority, our beginnings and our future, our points in scripture that are there to give us hope and to motivate us, enlarging our perspective. How much time have you, have you spent thinking that all the details of your life are really the important thing? What's going on here in this life? Yeah, there are important things, but they pale in comparison to what's ahead of us in the new, the kingdom. Like the hymn writer said, turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I hope that each one of us will learn to fully trust and obey, doing the work of the kingdom, not only because we love the Lord, but also because it determines what and to what degree we will be privileged to serve him in the kingdom come. We're not just in an endurance race hoping to get to the end and finally land in heaven. So to every believer in this room, including those of you watching online, I beg you for your own good and for the love of Jesus Christ. Be active and engaged in the advance of his kingdom while we are yet here. What crown will you be wearing in the new kingdom? Right now, you don't need to know. Just be faithful. Be faithful when you're tired and discouraged. Overcome <clears throat> when the enemy, whatever the enemy throws at you. God has promised that all our struggle is going to be worth it. <clears throat>